You're listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Control, contain, recover. That's the response crews are to take in the event of a leak at the Red Hill Underground Fuel Storage Facility. But the Navy's own report shows a series of failures to deal with the most recent leaks that led to the fuel contaminating water used by thousands of families living in military housing. Today, today, Ernie Lau, chief engineer of the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, joins us live in studio. He's here to take your questions about threats to our water resource and the latest on conservation measures that we need to take. In full disclosure, Uh, The Board of Water Supply is an underwriter of HPR. Good morning, Ernie. Good morning, Catherine. So, gosh, I know it was the the long weekend, um, but I'm sure you probably went back back over these reports in Uh, finer detail. uh, Yes, I did, but uh, I also took took time to recharge and uh, enjoy the uh, celebration with my family. Okay. Yeah, you need to do that. You need to uh, kind of get grounded. Uh, but what struck you as you uh, poured over the reports this weekend? Uh, the, the thing that struck me on the, uh, the defueling plan was uh, the lack of real detail. Uh, it seemed like they were very good at identifying uh, reasons for further delays, like the uncertainty of supply chain and, uh, and other issues like that. Uh, but I was also surprised uh, with the defueling plan, the lack of uh, cost estimates to do this work, uh, because funding is going to be critically important for them to actually carry out this defueling plan. So uh, it was a little disappointing not seeing what the budget would be required to implement these actions. And, you know, you did come out um, the day after this report was released to say that the timeline is just is off. It, it, it needs to be sooner than two years. Yeah, just to put it in perspective, you know, it took only three years to construct this massive facility from 1940 uh, to 43, and uh, it's going to take them two and a half years to a- empty out uh, 104 million gallons out of that facility. And, uh, you know, a number of people are uh, uh, lining up behind you on the call to defuel this uh, facility sooner, but safely. Um, uh, one of the uh, uh, folks uh, that we talked to this morning um, is uh, Kathleen Ho. She's the Deputy uh, Environmental Health Director at the Department of Health. Uh, she was dismayed because uh, this morning um, she got another surprise. Uh, Honolulu Civil Beat uh, broke a story today. A reporter, Christina Jedra, has video, obtained video uh, showing the leak at the tank. Um, uh, it you know, here's what she had to say about seeing that video for the first time this morning. We had not seen this. And again, it shows that there's lack of transparency, which we would press the Navy to, to do. Did you ask if there was any video? During the investigation early on, they said, oh, there are cameras there, but then some of the cameras were not operable. Correct. I can't say for certain, but I believe the program has asked for all the information, including video. Yeah, so she was very dismayed. Um, you know, this whole transparency issue has been a problem, although we've heard from uh, multiple times uh, from different levels in the military that they pledge to restore trust uh, and, and, and um, uh, provide increased transparency. But even the release of the reports last week, uh, the media was under an embargo that we couldn't use uh, the information until Friday morning, and it wasn't until the Department of Health actually got their hands on that report, you know, was that embargo broken because they are not bound by any embargo. Uh, so, so you know, how did you react when you saw the video this morning of that fuel spill? I, I thought it was an amazing video. So the it kind of goes back to, uh, I recall the request from one of our congressmen last year to actually get the video records of all the uh, over 100 different cameras in that lower access tunnel, which would have also provided uh, information, valuable information, on what happened with the May, May 6th release last year uh, with a pipeline bursting open that lower tunnel. Um, so I thought the, uh, the video was astounding. I, I noticed that the amount of fuel was uh, flowing out of it, but uh, there wasn't a whole lot of buildup on the floor, uh, which means to me when I looked at that is that their, their drainage system uh, which is normally there designed to drain rainwater from the tunnel itself because when it rains on Red Hill, the water leaks into that lower tunnel. Uh, that drain system, which exists under the rails, uh, was actually 
probably doing a great job draining the fuel into the aquifer. Uh, and some of it also probably was being pumped out to the, uh, uh, the leach tank outside of edit number three, uh, which is, uh, would go directly into the ground and into the aquifer eventually. So I guess this idea of transparency, wh whether you're a regulator or a, a stakeholder in this, um, that's something that the mi military hasn't really... Uh, I, I've been at this for over <laughs> eight years now, eight and a half years. Uh, come January, to be nine years. Uh, this whole issue of transparency has always been a challenge. Uh, they can uh, provide the rhetoric uh, to say that they will be transparent and build trust, but it's really the actions that are not consistent with that rhetoric that demonstrates that uh, they're not being actually transparent and that there may be more information that's available that could be very valuable in looking at what was the ma scope and magnitude of the problem and what we need to do to recover the aquifer from contamination. The day after the uh, report was released, you held a news conference uh, and you talked about the discovery of um, a lava tube. Um, explain to our listeners why that's important and why that distressed you to learn about that in this report. So we've always said this, and I think the Navy's records, especially the uh, the logs of the each of the excavations for the, each of the 20 tanks revealed that there's uh, the, the underground geology is not very uniform, and it's very inconsistent. There are lava tubes that exist, like we see in Hawaiian geology, lava tubes all over the, our, our island chain uh, that are act like a pipeline. So this, what I saw in that report, uh, investigative report, was that about on the water development tunnel for their drinking water source, that there was a lava tube uh, near the end of that tunnel, which is about 1,000 feet uh, long, and about 300 feet from the end, there's a lava tube that crosses through that uh, d water development tunnel uh, in the aquifer. So that, to me, brings fresh water into that uh, into that water development tunnel, but also could mean that fresh water is flowing past that point into the aquifer to some unknown location. So that wa uh, lava tube could act like a pipeline to transport fuel further and faster. Uh, in the underground aquifer. And then uh, let's back up a second. So the, the water development tunnel, so, explain that again. Uh, so the re the drinking water source, Red Hill Shaft or Red Hill Well, uh, one end of the, this, uh, they when they built it, it's a skimming type of tunnel. So it skims water off the top of the aquifer, uh, almost like our Halava Shaft, what they call a Maui type of well, uh, skimming tunnel. Uh, so this tunnel is dug uh, horizontally submerge in the top of the aquifer, and this one in Red Hill goes about a thousand feet. At one end are the, is the, are the pumps, the large pumps that pump it into the water system. But this tunnel draws water from the aquifer into this tunnel and moves it to the pumps, and the pumps pump it into the water system serving Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam. So it's taking water near the top of the aquifer where you would uh, expect to find the highest levels of fuel contaminants. And, you know, uh, uh, the the concern that you have about transparency, um, you know, Ho had r really stressed, you know, her concern after reading this uh, investigative report. Uh, here's what she had to say about uh, the one thing that really struck her um, after reading this. There's a sentence in the report that highlights in my mind the failures. And, and the sentence reads, the lack of critical thinking, intellectual rigor, and self-assessment by key leaders at decisive moments exemplified the culture of complacency and demonstrated a lack of professionalism that is demanded by high consequences nature of fuel operations. I think that sentence says it all. I think that sentence also, and the report also, highlights for me that we did the right thing when we, when we issued the emergency order calling for the cease of the operations because, because this report vindicates our actions. And, you know, no one wants to say, I told you so. You know, you, you've been in this situation where you've been trying to get people's attention to understand the risk to our water resource. Uh, 
I don't know. Do you remember that sentence in the report? It's just uh, oh. yeah, I remember that sentence. I, I I don't think it covers the full story here, though. Uh, this this report is extremely critical of the operations that it wasn't being operated very well, and um, so it kind of raises a question in my mind: Is this a problem unique to only Red Hill, or is it systemic for other critical fuel facilities that the DOD operates across the Pacific and other places? Are they being operated in an environmentally protective manner uh, that'll prevent contaminants from being released and uh, damaging valuable resources? I just want to point back, uh, because I've been on this thing for eight years, eight plus years. In 2010, the Naval Audit Service uh, did an audit of this facility, and it basically concluded that the facility was not being operated in a fashion that was protective of the environment. So. This report, yeah, looks really bad, uh, and it is uh, a critical assessment, a critical review of this facility, but it's not the first time. I think they've known about this, these troubles or these problems for many years, and I point back to the 2010 Naval Audit Service report that we were able to get a, re a redacted version of being critical of how the facility is being operated. You know, we did invite the military uh, to join us today, um, and we didn't hear back. We checked again this morning. Uh, but uh, we do have uh, some audio from a news conference that they held on Thursday. Uh, and uh, we have a, a soundbite from Admiral uh, Samuel Paparo, the commander of the U.S. Pacific Fleet. He was describing the aha moment when he knew he could not trust the initial review of what led to the leak at Red Hill. Receiving the report of the spill, I said, I want to go see it. I go to see it on November 22nd. While there on November 22nd, seeing a fire line, I say, where can this fuel have come from? And the response I got was, that must be the missing 20,000 gallons from May 6th. And upon hearing this, I said, I no longer trust the May 6th investigation and corrective actions because it was the first that I or any other senior leader had heard of 20,000 missing gallons over the course of six months. At that time, I, I directed my own independent investigation of the commands of the commands that had participated in the commands that were charged with operating and maintaining Red Hill. And that was the genesis of the Kavanaugh investigation, which I signed out on 23 November, assigning a separate independent nuclear trained officer to investigate that because I, it was at that time that I realized that the May 6th investigation was not probative, was not underpinned by sound engineering, and I wanted to look at the two spills as having been all of one giant incident. You know, when I heard that, I, I just was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> really? Uh, you know, the... Um I, I'm surprised. Uh, I, I appreciate Admiral Poparo uh, ordering that investigation. Uh, retrospectively, I just wish that report was released in mid-January as it was originally scheduled. Uh, then the I think the defueling plan and maybe the budgets and the scopes of that work would have been much more fleshed out. Um, but it's uh, it's pretty astounding. What you know what. One thing uh, that I see as kind of an inherent problem in how our, the military operates, uh, I, I probably work now with th at least three different admirals for Navy Region Hawaii. Every two or three years, they rotate out of there. Uh, so the military officers who are in command and responsible ultimately, uh, they have, they're, they're brand new coming in every two to three years. They need to then get educated on this massive, very complica uh, complex facility, very old facility, 79 years old. And can you expect a person to just assimilate that information quickly and be able to operate in a uh, safe and protective manner? So, they, so it's really this inherent turnover that is built into how the military operates 
that uh, creates a lack of understanding or knowledge of the facility and its vulnerabilities uh, that I think adds to the problems here. I know they're blaming it on human error, but I think the facility itself is beyond its useful life by decades, that it should have been retired many years ago. Just the age and condition of the facility itself is a, a clear threat to our water resources. So not only people, but also the infrastructure. So I think there needs to be a critical look at how the military maintains its critical infrastructure. Um, well, if you're just joining the conversation, we're talking about the Red Hill Underground Fuel Facility. Uh, we'd like to know what you think about the timeline to defuel it. The military is saying uh, two and a half years. Join the discussion by calling us at 941-3689 or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Uh, you know, uh, uh, at that news conference, uh, you know, uh, uh, Admiral Paparo did detail um, that chain of events. Uh, it's it, We want to play a, a clip of it. it it's, a, it's a long clip. It's about five minutes, but bear with us because I think it's important to understand that series of failures. Some people are calling it epic failure. Contamination of the drinking water was caused by multiple human errors over a period of several months. First, the primary cause of the May 6 spill was a failure to follow valve operating procedures, as I described. Second, the cause of the November 20th spill was failure to account for all of the fuel spilled on May 6th. Shortly after the May spill, Personnel evaluated the possibility that fuel had entered the fire suppression system retention line. They had no indication that the system's sump pumps ran and found no fuel in the external storage tank where the retention system discharges. We later identified a fault in the pump control circuit that precluded after-the-fact indications of the pump activation. Additionally, the elevation profile of the overhead retention line allowed it to hold the fuel without any of it reaching the external retention, retention line. In, parla in, in layman's terms, there was an elbow, essentially, in the retention line itself. The installed fuel accounting system showed a loss of approximately 20,000 gallons on May 6. However, this was not considered reliable at the time and was not reported. Assigned engineers, commanding officer, and the need and the lead Naval Supply Systems Command investigator erroneously concluded that the missing 20,000 gallons of fuel had flowed from the storage tank into a void in the piping system, often referred to as packing the pipe. This conclusion reflects a lack of engineering rigor and a misunderstanding of the fuel accounting system. Third, the primary cause of the drinking water contamination was a failure to properly respond to both spills. During both incidents, no one individual unambiguously took control of the scene. In fact, there were multiple leaders who gave direction and worked in committee. Leaders at the scene were also slow to correct initial reports that the November spill was water and made overly optimistic assessments that the fuel was being contained. This prevented senior Navy leaders from fully appreciating the risk to the environment in the days following the November 20th spill. The investigation identified several contributing factors. First, the command and control structure, C2, as you'll hear it sometimes called, was overly complex and not well understood. Among other problems, this resulted in no one individual being singularly responsible and accountable for incident response. Second, the construction of portions of the fire system out of PVC piping instead of steel, along with a delay in maintaining the system following the construction, created vulnerabilities that contributed to this sequence of events. And finally, neither the base nor the region 
had conducted spill response training or drills to prepare for a spill at Red Hill. In terms of communication, the investigation determined that reports to the environmental regulators, state, congressional leaders, members of the military, and their families, and the public following both spills during the subsequent water contamination was based on providing the most up-to-date information available. However, there were missteps. Although the Navy's communication with environmental regulators met the requirements of governing instructions, the focus was on compliance rather than partnership and in the common mission of protecting the environment. Appendix C of the water report provides a detailed accounting of fuel spilled and recovered since 6 May. It is a revision to the corresponding appendix in the Kavanaugh report based on subsequent field measurement of fuel piping. Again, the Kavanaugh report will reflect one figure. The updated report, armed with more rigor, will update the amended amount of fuel. Overall, the investigation determined a maximum of 19,377 gallons of fuel was spilled on November 20th, of which 4,772 gallons remain unaccounted for. Yeah, I mean, it is staggering when you think just, you know, failure after failure after failure. And, you know, your point that when you have a new commander coming in, you know, there's a steep learning curve. And, and so there's this systemic systemic problem <laughs> with, uh, you know, actually fully appreciating how this thing works and what you have to do to minimize the risk to our water. Uh, it is a challenge. I think uh, when I went in there back in December with uh, two congressmen, uh, one of the comments were, uh, I think the uh, operators of the facility didn't even know about that underfloor drain system, that they have to go back to old records to actually uh, find that information. Uh, so the facility is really massive and very complicated, and there doesn't appear to be a, like a single person or a group of people that fully understand every aspect of the facility. And new people are rotating in every two to three years. Uh, one, one of the things I, you know, Catherine, if I could say, mm -hmm. I was looking for in the report, and I haven't gone through all 200-plus pages of the report, but I re recall uh, there was a new story that was broke last year based on an email that was sent out by the captain who used to be responsible for the facility who was uh, relieved the command, uh, and it was to a whole bunch of admirals and others disclosing that there were additional pressure surges occurring, I think, in September uh, that caused concern that a uh, May 6th, a May event might be repeated. So they shut the whole facility down for nine days while they investigated these pressure transients or these uh, pressure fluctuations in the pipeline. Uh, I didn't see that covered in the, this investigative report. Uh, so again, you know, it's, uh, it's probably not just uh, problems that exist at the working level, the, the civilian workers that operate the facility or the the immediate military commander is over that, but uh, the uh, the failures also might be uh, higher up the chain of command. Yeah, and and you know the admiral did admit that you know that the, the facility is understaffed, you know, and there are people in positions that are clueless, <laughs> uh, and and we have to grapple with that, and and the result is fuel in our water. So so the bottom line, I think, is is very important to get this fuel safely defueled as soon as possible. Two and a half years is too long. They need to find a way to do it in a shorter time frame. Well, you're listening to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. We're talking about the Red Hill Underground Fuel Facility and the timeline that the military has announced uh, that we will follow to defuel it. Our guest is Board of Water Supply Chief Engineer Ernie Lau. You can join the discussion, too, by calling 1-877-941-3689. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a short break. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. 
Hi, I'm Dr. Christian De Quincey, author of Blind Spots. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how common cliches distort our understanding of science, philosophy, and spirituality. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, offering resources to Hawaii's educators, including the workshop Teaching for Artistic Behaviors, open to the community, honolulumuseum.org slash educators. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, we seek out some useful advice. I am right now trying to live my life with the idea that I'm not going to live forever. One of our favorite sages, Kevin Kelly, offers suggestions on parenting, on travel, and much more. Maybe advice is not really the right word. Maybe it should be stuff that worked for me. It might work for you. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Beginning this evening at 7, following Counterspin. on the conversation. Our in-studio guest is Ernie Lau, Chief Engineer of the Honolulu Board of Water Supply. Uh, we have a call coming in from the Big Island. Tom, what's on your mind? Yes, good morning. And uh, I guess this is the proverbial um, uh, David against Goliath, where Mr. Lau is a David and the military is a go- uh, Goliath. And I just want to just uh, commend his uh, perseverance for going against this uh, institution or, you know, in Historically, they they love to um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They they just try to use um, poke and mirrors at times to uh, say that the job is getting done when it actually isn't. Uh, so my comment is I, I'm a, a veteran of the Marine Corps from the early early 80s, and why we why it's so hard for the military to go back and look for individuals that were actually stationed there at the facility from years ago that know how the facility runs. Uh, so, for an example, back they were bringing all the battleships back. They brought uh, the Iowa, New Jersey, Wisconsin, and the uh, Missouri back in the early 80s. So they didn't have any sailors at that time who knew how to operate those systems, those, those weapon systems. So what they did was they brought back all of these senior chiefs, master chiefs, to come back and help with uh, the recommissioning of those ships. So why couldn't the government go back and find people that worked at the facility, that knew how the facility was run, bring those people back to solve some of these problems that we're going through right now. And I'll, and I'll listen to the answer. Thank you so much for allowing me to participate. Thank you, Tom, uh, for your question. And Ernie? Uh, you know, Tom, that's a, that's a great suggestion because I think there's a wealth of knowledge and experience from the folks that used to work in that facility, some of them for mul- multiple decades. Uh, that they should start to tap them because uh, the folks that are in charge, uh, especially on the military side, are all probably pretty new. Uh, and those are, you know, if they're developing the plans, you know, tap this uh, knowledge, this pool of knowledge from those that are willing to come back. Uh, I would hope the military would consider uh, do, doing that. Good and, suggestion. And, you know, I, I do believe some uh, former retired military personnel have stepped up. I think they're in contact with the state health department. Um, you know, certainly uh, everybody wants to get to the bottom of, of uh, you know, this uh, contamination problem and to avoid having it drift over in our aquifer where it's pulled into the other shafts and contaminates even uh, more drinking water. You know, Catherine, I, I'm glad you mentioned the aquifer because the focus has been in the last few days about the facility, the investigation, the plan to defill. But what's critically important right now is the investigation to the nature and extent of the contamination or damage to the underground aquifer needs to proceed ASAP. It needs to be high high priority, almost as high priority as the defilling of the facility because my concern is, you know, we don't know. We're kind of flying blind right now because of lack of information, real data on what's happening with the aquifer and how the groundwater flows. That investigation needs to be pushed forward aggressively in parallel to the efforts to defuel the facility. You know, a number of the environmental groups have lined up behind you in the call for a speedier timeline. We talked to the Sierra Club, uh, uh, Wayne Tanaka, uh, about uh, his concerns. Here's what he had to say. To have 
over 100 million gallons of fuel to continue to be stored 100 feet over a groundwater aquifer uh, for two years when at any point an earthquake or an electrical fire or some other event could cause a catastrophic release, you know, that's just unacceptable. You know, in Tanaka's view, the most recent fuel spill isn't the first time the military, the Navy, has had a lackluster response in a crisis. What's really concerning is it's just so reminiscent of what happened in 2014 when we had a spill of 27,000 gallons. I mean, the same kind of lack of urgency, uh, lack of you know, critical thinking, lack of leadership, you know, assuming that you know, everything's fine, assuming the best case scenarios. This wasn't a, like, a one-time incident like they're trying to pass it off as. It's, you know, this is just a, what, a manifestation of systemic failures, a, a culture of, of negligence. You know, Ernie, you mentioned the uh, spill of 2014, and, you know, my understanding is that there are uh, steps that they, corrective steps, corrective action that they um, had a whole list of doing, and and they have not completed that. Uh, Yeah, that's after 2014, uh, the 27,000 gallons uh, from tank number five, uh, the, you know, a... Administrator order and consent, or ALC, was signed between the Department of Health, uh, the Navy, and the EPA, and the Defense Logistics Agency. And from that, I, I remember being in some of those meetings. Uh, they invited us uh, where they wanted to, uh, t- as a subject matter expert. They kind of explained how they made operational changes to improve how they operate the facility. But unfortunately, it doesn't look like the, those changes took hold and were carried through. So that led us to May and November of last year. And we still really don't know where the 27,000 gallons went. No, we don't. And we were very concerned about it. Uh, I remember being in the lower tunnel at the time, and you could see fuel seeping out of the concrete wall at the base of that tank number five. And that's how they learned they actually had a leak in that tank. Uh, They saw the fuel showing up, soaking through the concrete. You know, and I recall being taken into, I think, tank number five, and it, it's just astounding when you think, okay, where did this fuel go? And we still don't have those answers. Uh, I, I know that uh, Admiral John Acolino, the commander of the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, uh, stressed that, you know, unlike the uh, the failure to have an incident commander uh, when we had this emergency uh, going forward, uh, they want to make sure they've got a point person to deal with this whole defueling process. This structure of a joint task force uh, will appoint a senior, in this case a Navy officer, with a staff to focus full-time attention on the safety fueling of the facility. That is a single and accountable organization that will report through me to the Secretary of Defense. This is an operational approach to ensure mission accomplishment. And lastly, it's important to know that the Secretary's decision allows for all resources, the entire weight of the Department of Defense, to be able to be focused on the safe, expeditious defueling of the facility. But to your point, you said you want to make sure that whoever's in this position is going to stick around. Uh, exactly. Uh, you know, I appreciate uh, Admiral Ag- Aguilino's uh, approach here. So you have somebody that's reporting directly to the head of the EOD uh, with very little layers between. If I could make a suggestion there, whoever they appoint and their staff, they're on this project, on this effort, until it's done. That they don't leave this effort until they're finished emptying out the last drop of fuel out of those tanks and pipelines. We have a call coming in from Makiki. Art, what's on your mind? Uh, I also want to commend Ernie Lau for what he's been doing. And uh, But I think what we need to see here is uh, heads rolling. I mean, starting at the very top. And just keep, you know, lopping them off until something is done. This is like our water resource here. And, we, you know, we, we can't... Uh, uh, cannot allow this to continue. It, it's it's ridiculous. You know, I had a friend once who was in the uh, military and rose pretty high, and he kept bragging to me about how smart these officers are. Uh, and um, you know, I just don't see it. What's happening here? It's just unbelievable. This 
this is a United States Navy. And I noticed that some Army general just got promoted who was connected with this. Instead of promoting, let's start firing. Thank you, Art, for that. You know, uh, and that promotion, I believe, is of an Army um, officer, and he, he was uh, uh, promoted uh, in part, I think, because of his response to the Red Hill uh, crisis. I believe uh, I've seen stories where the the Army disagreed with the Navy about the safety of our water, and they took extra steps to make sure that uh, their Army personnel, you know, at AMR, uh, had the water they needed, you know, had the water trucks, that kind of thing, had facilities to do laundry at the height of that crisis. But, you know, getting back to this disciplinary um, action, we we only saw one head roll, uh, and uh, that was, I believe, a captain. Um, but there are... You know, to Art's point, you know, other folks up the the command chain, uh, and I guess people want to see somebody held accountable. Uh, yeah, I, I understand where Art's coming from. Yeah, I don't can't say I don't disagree, uh, but I also want to make sure that we don't take away any uh, efforts to actually get this uh, accomplished. Um, but until there's accountability, you know, the, this this situation could be repeated again and again. And you know we have heard the military say that they were they are still looking at that. They've got different uh, people looking at what's going to be, uh, I guess, the most appropriate action taken. But the priority right now is to defuel this facility. Uh, and uh, you know we have seen uh, uh, our congressional members talk about you know they've got money earmarked in Congress to help speed things up. Uh, but, you know, I don't know, what about from where the Board of Water Supply sits? You know, what about reimbursement for your cost? You're having to, to drill new wells. Talk about that. Uh, yes, thank you, Catherine. You know, we are, are expending money, our repair funds, to actually look at a variety of solutions right now uh, to try to uh, get us out of this crisis mode uh, for the Board of Water Supply. And at some point, we do ask our congressional delegation to pursue it. I've been in communication with them, and I appreciate their support. Uh, but we do need to make our ratepayers whole uh, because of the situation. I do want to point out that the uh, defueling of tanks is only one half of this. The other half is recovering the aquifer and the water resources. And not, if we find that the uh, spread of fuel is even greater, uh, more wells could be potentially impacted. So we need to know right away. Right. I mean, happened. that's your greatest fear, right, is that um, we're going to have to shut down more The uh, The more common inter point of intersection between the Navy and the Board of Water Supply and our community is the water resources itself. We both share the same water resources, uh, so it makes no sense to to contaminate and injure this water resources because we both need it. We rely upon, uh, upon it for our survival, so... Uh, that effort needs to move fast. Where are we at with uh, conservation measures? Conservation, we've been working hard since March of this year to get that message out. We're asking for voluntary conservation, uh, targeting the 10% reduction. And I think people are starting to hear that. Um, we see that island-wide uh, for the month of May, uh, uh, water demand went lower than the five-year uh, monthly moving average. So that's a positive sign. Yes, there was uh, rain in May, and we're getting a rain in June. Uh, and I just thank uh, Keakua for every drop of rain we get on our island that will help reduce water demand and recharge our aquifer. So I think we're making headway here, uh, but we're far from the hot, dry summer months that are coming up in uh, probably August, September, maybe even October. We uh, do have a comment from a listener, John, from Honolulu. Uh, writes, and he has a civil engineering background. He doesn't believe that the facility should take two years to defuel. He thinks with adequate materials and equipment, it should take less than a month. Why so long? Uh, my question exactly, John. Um, amen to that. Yeah, and uh, the military initially over the past eight years, right, they've been telling us, well, you know, uh, we can defuel a tank in, in short 24 order. Four hours. <laughs> right. So why two years? I I don't know, but we. But what's also important is that we don't want another pipeline failure in that lower tunnel, which could dump out more fuel than we've ever seen before. 
you're talking about pipeline and you know we have aging pipelines you know we we just had a big break uh in punalu in punalu took out the highway a card you know uh, went in uh, the Catherine, i'm sorry to say we have one on pulo road too uh today now <laughs> uh, it started yesterday yeah and how big does that mean uh i think it's a 30 inch pipe okay so, or 36 so pretty big inch. yeah and so we've got to deal with this aging pipe, and I know you are in the process of coming up with the plan to deal with uh, this. Yeah, actually, we came up with the plan in 2016, and we're implementing it, uh, replacing more and more of the pipeline uh, infrastructure, but also investing in our water tanks and our pumping stations. Uh, so we've increased our capital program to about $170 million a year, and we need uh, to continue to invest in the infrastructure uh, because— it, Infrastructure, if you don't take care of it, will give you problems in the future. And I think the, uh, the Red Hill Fuel Facility is an example. Uh, one idea I had, you know, they, talk, they have three large pipelines in that lower access tunnel. Perhaps they can put their energy in making one of those pipelines very viable to move the fuel and not uh, look at upgrading all three pipelines uh, so that they can focus their time and money and short, you know, shorten that timeline uh, by just focusing on a large pipeline. It goes from 16 inches, 18 inches to 32 inches in diameter. Just go fix the big one and use all that uh, the big pipe to move all the fuel out of there. Right. So that might be a way to expedite things. Uh, it's my uh, uneducated uh, approach here. Well, you know, we we do have to upgrade uh, our pipes, and and uh, as you mentioned, uh, you know, you're probably going to have to ask for. Uh, uh, higher rates uh, for all of us to pay for our water. Uh, what kind of timeline do we have for rolling out hikes? Uh, you know, we always need to continue to invest in our infrastructure or it will, it'll create really tremendous problems in the future. Not investing in the infrastructure just kicks the problem down the road into future generations. So for the Board of Water Supply, we are 100% dependent on our ratepayer revenue. So people paying their water bills and mahalo to everybody that pays their water bills because that funds the operation and also the capital program to in, improve the and invest into the uh, infrastructure uh, that provides water to people. Uh, so we also balance that with affordability for our customers. So we are looking at rate increases, but we want to keep them uh, at least a more smaller, incremental, and steadily increase rates on an incremental basis a little at a time as opposed to uh, no rate increases for many years and have to do a big catch-up. We think that is not as affordable to our customers. So, yes, we are looking at the uh, next set of rate increases that we have to do, but we're very mindful of the, of the economic conditions of our community. Uh, but we also have to balance that with investing in our infrastructure. Well, no one likes surprises, but, I mean, can you give us any kind of a time frame? Uh, the rate study is uh, being done right now. Uh, so maybe in the next couple of years, we'll be doing outreach to the community. So part of our process is to really do a lot of extensive outreach and education. Okay, so, so nothing uh, like for the rest of the year? Uh, nothing this year. Okay. <laughs> no, nothing this year, uh, definitely. Maybe and, uh, in a year, uh, maybe in a year to two years. And a reminder to listeners, we have Ernie Lau, the chief engineer of the Board of Water Supply, in our studios today. He is available to take your questions or comments. Uh, all you have to do is call uh, 808-941-3689. For the neighbor islands, call 1-877-941-3689. And, you know, uh, we did uh, uh, get uh, additional comment on our uh, talkback line. Um, here's what one gentleman had to say. I used to work water water supply for 13 years. And I'm thinking about the, the Red Hill water system. So, you know, it's just an idea because everybody don't know what you're going to do with the water system. So I think you need to pump the water all up and climb out in the ocean and dilute them with the, the salt water. Okay, thank you. I think he's referring to the water, the, the contaminated water that the military had, and that is ex exactly what they're doing. They're filtering it. And, and they're, they're putting it in uh, Palava the Palava stream, stream yeah, right? And it goes into Pearl Harbor. But you know, tied into the whole idea of conservation is if that water is clean, it's just going into the water. And why can't we use that water for, you know, landscaping and uh, and other uses? So right now, the Navy used to have three drinking water sources. 
Two of them are shut down. They only have Wyava shaft over in Pearl City operational. Uh, so they're pumping all that water to supply their potable and also non-potable irrigation needs. So I think this water that's being pumped out of Red Hill shaft to flush, flush out the aquifer, that water should be transported to Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam and used for non-potable, non-drinking purposes. They've got two large golf courses, the Navy Marine Golf Course and the Hickam Golf Course, or uh, Makai of the Runway. They should pu uh, pump that water to help serve those two golf courses and other irrigation or non-potable needs. Yeah, and I don't know why that is so hard, because you think the military can do anything, right? I mean, that's what they, 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 they say, you know, can do, we're prepared, and yet... I, Here it is, they're exceeding their permit. Yeah, uh, so they can reduce how much they pump out of Pearl City, uh, Wyalva Shaft, by reusing the uh, four or five million gallons a day of flush water on base for non-potable uses. We uh, have another listener who uh, shy, <laughs> but wrote in, um, this is KL from Kailua. She says, uh, how about putting the fuel into use right away? Can't this be used now? He's talking about the fuel in the tanks, the 100, 102 million gallons, I believe. I, yeah, it's a good question. I, I don't know. It's owned by the military, uh, the Defense Logistics Agency, and it's up to the, them uh, how they want to use that fuel. You know, and, and uh, I've heard uh, uh, folks wonder why uh, we can't um, defuel quickly. I mean, we've got the RIMPAC games uh, underway now, you know, if, if there's a need for fuel that this is there. But obviously, we're in a situation, we're in a holding pattern with Red Hill right now. Uh, unless the military uh, wants to to hold some of that fuel in a bay because of the you know global tensions that we're experiencing right now and the threats in the Pacific region. But um, you'd almost want them to say that, you know, but at the same time, you've got the risk of a leak and the risk to our water. Yeah, further damage to our precious aquifer, uh, which needs to be protected and, and it needs to be cleaned up. Well, you know, this uh, report, I should say these reports have uh, triggered, you know, a number of questions. I don't know if you have questions for the military that you'd like answered. Uh, anything you want to say to them at this point? I, I would ask that they uh, please uh, stop with the rhetoric and uh, demonstrate by your actions on the fuel facility side and on the aquifer. Uh, that will help to, I think, rebuild trust in people. But you need to carry out your words and quickly. We have another call coming in from Maui. Bill from Kahului. You have a question um, for Ernie Lau? Yeah, or a comment, really. Just a comment. Yes. Um, you know, we, it's good to have the knowledge and the understanding and the communication, and that provides a base for activity and action. And as a small business person, it's kind of frustrating that to me that if we just talked and talked and communicated about what we did and we didn't do anything, then we would be typically out of business. We wouldn't have been able to provide services or anything that people could actually use to solve anything. So it's kind of sad. To me, it's kind of sad that we have such large places and people and agencies and large amounts of money being used to, to do things, to, to get the word out and get things moving and get things communicated. But as far as application of resources to stop what needs to be done and correct what needs to be done. I'd rather hear somebody saying, oh, we bought a large amount of pumps and filters and we turned off their use of the fuel, you know, something that, that actually stops something like now. Uh, thank you, Bill. I, I feel the same way. Um, enough with the words already. Let's prove it by your actions, and please carry carry through quickly. We've got about two minutes left, Ernie. Um, going forward, I don't know. Do you have meetings set up with the military, with the health department? Uh, you know, now that this report is out and people are, are trying to digest what's in there. 
Uh, we don't have anything scheduled right now, but uh, well, we want to be continue in participating in any opportunity we can to provide our Manao uh, into the aquifer investigation, even into the whole defueling plans. Uh, we're willing to provide our Manao. We're not experts in it, uh, but you know, we'll take a critical look at it and give you what we think. You know, and there are a, a number of people that are 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 pulling together their um, their their expertise. You know, you've got folks up at the University of Hawaii, the Water Resource Center. Um, you do have you know some uh, former retired military personnel who are familiar with the operations at Red Hill. You know, at the table, uh, trying to offer their best guess into where that uh, fuel is going and 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 how to clean it up. Yeah, I think it's very important right now. Uh, representing the state of Hawaii with the legal authority is actually our State Department of Health. Uh, so I, I support the emergency order, and, and these uh, resources, you know, should be directed to them. Uh, uh, Board of Water Supply, we're an important stakeholder in the resource, and that's why we're in this thing for the for the long term. We've got about thirty seconds. Anything you want to say to our listeners and to uh, our water users out there? I just really appreciate everybody's support on the attention that has been given from the community, from the grassroots level, on the Red Hill issue. That has moved the mountain here. Uh, so mahalo to everybody, uh, the different environmental organizations, uh, the grassroots organizations, the Kanaka Maoli coming out and saying something and taking a stand, and also our elected officials. We need to be one of one mind and continue to move forward of one mind. Well, we'd like to thank you, Ernie Lau, for uh, for being there over the past eight, you know, almost nine years now. And uh, uh, we just hope that uh, we get some of the answers um, to the questions that we have that have been triggered by these reports. And we hope the military will be available to answer those. Uh, we'd like to thank the listeners for joining us uh, on today's show. If you have a comment to share about this Red Hill water situation, call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Send us an email at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And if you want to listen back to today's show, check out the conversation podcast at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.